Welcome to the Oakcrest Podcast Channel. Oakcrest School in Vienna, Virginia challenges girls in grades 6 to 12 to develop character, faith, and leadership potential to thrive in college and throughout their lives. In this podcast, Oakcrest dad and author Austin Roos shares his insights on how to confront an often daunting cultural environment with joy and optimism for the benefit of our daughters, our families, and our community. Mr. Roos is the author of Under Siege, No Finer Time to Be Catholic, which he discusses in this talk. All right, let's begin this way. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners. Do you notice what we did there? We cited, um, we're asking the Blessed Mother for two things. Somebody had to point this out to me after hundreds of thousands of Aves over the years. Somebody had to point out. She's asking, uh, we're, we're asking her to pray for us now and at the hour of our death. And these are the two moments God wants us to be concerned about. He doesn't want us wallowing in the past, you know, those things that we did that are embarrassing that still, when we think about it, <coughs> um, we're not supposed to be doing that. And we're not supposed to be overly worried about the future, certainly. We have plans and goals and all that. But these plans and goals cannot weigh us down. They cannot make us fret. What may happen then is that we forget what is right in front of us, which is the present moment, where he speaks to us right here, right now, in this moment, in this moment. But there are certain dispositions of personality that prevent some of us from living in the present moment. Some say, oh, I wish I had lived in another age. In the 1950s, they were so great, so different, and the faith was practiced by all when there were 15 masses a day at the local church, and there were, in, in New York City, there were 15 masses every day in some of the churches near uh, Madison Square Garden. Or I wish I had lived in the Middle Ages when great saints and spiritual giants walked the earth, torch-like processions through the streets. Oh, how wonderful that would have been. And this is the disposition of nostalgia, golden age thinking that takes us away from the present moment that God has called us to. And then there's the disposition of fear. The world is frightening. They are coming for us. They're coming for our faith. The enemy encamps all around us. There are demons circling over our heads and over the heads of our children. And all of this is certainly true. But the disposition of fear can have the effect of freezing us like Lot's wife. And then, perhaps the biggest one of all, is the disposition of distraction. Perhaps perhaps the greatest of, of them all that takes us away from the present moment. And by this I mean video games, sports, television, golf, anything that can take us away from the present moment. Each of these, nostalgia, fear, and distraction, take us away from the present moment that he has called us. <coughs> but we have to admit that we live in very dark times. Abortion takes still upwards of a million children a year. Every year, every, every one of these deaths is violent. Everyone involves a member of of, of a family unwanted by the rest of the family. This person has to be exterminated. It's the greatest human rights issue of our time. It's still going on. Family breakdown continues apace. 70% of black children are born into families without a father present. 50% of white children are born in the same way. Sexually transmitted diseases are rampant at epidemic levels. Some sexually transmitted diseases have reemerged that we thought that we had wiped out. In the public schools, they are teaching something called comprehensive sexuality education that teaches children that they have sexual identities and sexual rights, 
that the highest moral imperative when, when it comes to sex and kids is that all parties to the encounter have given consent. Marriage is mocked, abstinence is mocked, LGBT are the holy letters that must adorn all classrooms. Pornography is rampant. Have you guys ever heard of a company called MindGeek? MindGeek is a bunch of guys up, in, a small group of guys up in Canada who invented free, uh, free streaming pornography. They make more money these days than Netflix. This has trapped millions of men and women and children. Um, studies show that upwards of 60% of divorce actions cite pornography addiction as one of the reasons. 20 years ago, so-called gender clinics hardly existed, and now there's, I don't know, more than 100 of them. And Planned Parenthood that has 600 clinics around the country are dispensing uh, puberty blockers like candy. So yes, the world is dark and getting darker. We can all understand the temptations of fear and nostalgia and distraction. But I'm here to tell you that things are even worse than you think. Oh. <laughs> uh, I'm not the only one that makes the case that certain activities of the left have taken on practically religious connotations, that abortion is a sacrament. Um, that's the one that we all know quite well. That homosexuality is inborn and unchangeable. That your true sex can be different than your bodily <coughs> sex is a faith claim with no basis in science or reason. I argue in my book, Under Siege, which is gonna be for sale right over there, gentlemen, that all of these ideas are a dogma of a new state religion, a new established church. And this new church is not Christian. In fact, this new established church views Christians as heretics. And this is why it's worse than what we think. Who are we as a people has been the subject of debate in this country since our founding. On the one side, on the one side, are those that we can call the providentialists. Providentialists declare that God works in history and that it is important as a people to acknowledge his providential superintendence and that the community should actively instill this in children. We're providentialists. On the other side of the secularists, who demand that any acknowledgement of the deity, if there is one, must be purely private, done in secret. Does this sound familiar? And that such a belief cannot be supported or even acknowledged by the what one constituency views as imperative, the other regards as forbidden. In the 1960s, the federal government decided to take a side in this national debate. Now, you know, when you look back at history, sometimes the provident they were like political parties. The providentialists would win a debate, or the secularists would win a debate, and the federal government largely stayed out of it. Um, there were a couple of court cases in the early 60s, uh, one in particular where the, uh, where the federal government took a side in this debate, and it has utterly changed everything. You all remember the school prayer case. Uh, the, the school prayer case uh, was, a, was about a fairly anodyne prayer, prayer uh, that was written by a, 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 a priest, a rabbi, and a Protestant minister you know, who walk into a bar. Um, and it was like, you know, God the Father, please bless us, our government leaders, our teachers, and our parents. That, that was kind of it. Um, and then it was uh, challenged. It was upheld in 11 out of 13 court cases in New York State. It was up, it, the prayer was upheld. And then it went to the Supreme Court and it was struck down. Every governor in the country, with the exception of the governor of New York, uh, made a statement condemning the decision. There were editorials from coast to coast condemning the decision. It was not controversial that children said this prayer in school. Um, but that's not the important one. The important case that changed everything was the next year, and that is the Bible reading case. Uh, you know, children used to read the Bible in school. 
Um, the court struck that down, said it's not allowed, um, and went on to say that the object and purpose of government has to be secular. That's when they put their thumb on the scale. That's when they took a side in this national debate about who we are. And what followed from this was a series of cases solidifying this view. There is the Griswold decision on contraception, the Eisenstadt decision on contraception for single people, Roe v. Wade on abortion, Lawrence v. Texas on homosexual sodomy, and most recently, 2015, the Obergefell decision on, on same-sex marriage. Um, so all of these are really religious dogmas of the newly established church. They, are, they have all been imposed by the state. They have cascaded down from the Supreme Court through the federal courts, through the Justice Department, the Department of Education, and all the rest, and all the way down to the local grade school a mile from here where they used to pray and read the Bible, and now they recite new religious dogmas like my sex is assigned at birth and some girls have penises. When you teach a child to use proper pronouns, you're doing three things. You're asking him to deny reality, what he sees with his own eyes. You're asking him to deny his Christian belief in God's purposeful design and thereby uh, to deny God himself. And you're asking him to accept a new religion of humans who are not created, but who create themselves, of male-bodied people with female brains, of humans who can change their sex. Now, consider what was lost. Fornication used to be illegal. Adultery was illegal. Sodomy was illegal. Even seduction was considered both a tort and a crime. Now, whether these laws were good or bad, Consider that each of these laws reflected a fundamental aspect of traditional Christian teaching that has now been replaced by the faith that idealizes sexual pleasure. And the new established church has codified this viewpoint. This is why it's worse than what we thought. Walter Russell Mead calls this a genuine revolution in civilization. The French author Oliver Roy wonders whether what he calls the new faith of the desiring subject may be a current too strong for Christian civilization to resist. Now, you may think, and some people believe this, that all there is left for us to do is to hunker down and hope that the storm passes. There's an image I use in my book, Under Siege, um, from a pretty terrific Vietnam War movie, what I would bet all of you have seen, called Full Metal Jacket. Um, the American platoon is pinned down in the city of Hue. Snipers have shot two of their men out in the open. The, the, the platoon leader, Cowboy, orders his men to hunker down behind the wall. He says to them, you cannot refuse to accept the situation. You cannot refuse to accept the situation. All the while, his men are arriving and they're dying. Animal Mother, another character, ignores Cowboy's timid advice. He refuses to accept the situation. He straps on an enormous machine gun. He leaps over the wall and he charges the sniper's nest. I do not argue that we hunker down. I argue that we refuse to accept the situation, that we charge the sniper's nest all in our own way. It is why we are here. It is why we as Catholics are here. I argue that there has never been a finer time to be a faithful Catholic, and not in spite of all the cultural snipers around us, but precisely because of them. After all, this is the time that God has called us to. He has called us to no other. I argue that there are halos hanging from the lowest branches of the trees. All you have to do is reach up and grab one. 
For doing good, we live in the most target-rich environment that the world has ever known. Given that we are living in the midst of all this great evil, let us pause for a moment and consider one of the great questions of all time. How could a loving God allow the pain and suffering that we see all around us? British comedian and notorious atheist and homosexual Stephen Fry, remember Jeeves and Virgin Jeeves? Wonderful. He was asked a question, what would he do if he ever met God? And Fry said, I would say, bone cancer in children. What's that about? How dare you? How dare you create a world where there is such misery that is not our fault? It's not right. It's utterly, utterly evil. Why would I respect a capricious, mean-minded, mean stupid God who creates a world that is so full of injustice and pain? Now, I doubt that he would really do that. Um, but the answer came from Bishop Robert Barron, who said specifically to Fry. And he, he begins by paraphrasing God's answer to Job for a modern audience. You cannot possibly know because you are not me and you do not know everything. But then he goes on and he cites uh, J.R. Tolkien's three volume, 1300 page Lord of the Rings being ripped out and cast to the winds. This one paragraph floats on the winds for months. It becomes further tattered. Only bits of it remain here and there. Someone who has never read Tolkien stumbles upon this fragment of a page and reads one paragraph of this great sprawling novel. The paragraph he picks up is the scene of Frodo and Sam in Mordor, at, quote, at the depths of their suffering. In just one paragraph, it's just one paragraph. And the man who picks it up thinks, what a terrible story. <laughs> Whoever wrote that must be some kind of monster to have written that. And Baron says, that little paragraph belongs in a page which belongs in a chapter, which belongs in a sprawling 1,300-page novel we who have read the whole book know that terrible suffering of Frodo and Sam is an, an ingredient in this great, joyful, life-affirming story. The whole book cannot be judged or even remotely understood by that one paragraph. In the same way, Barron says, we live in a tiny fragment, one tiny sliver of space and time, and that it would be the height of arrogance to suggest from this tiny glimpse that we could possibly know the whole of God's creation. He says the suffering of a child, bone cancer in a child, is terrible. But is it nothing but terrible? It is, is it irredeemably terrible? It is, is it terrible, period? Or is it perhaps an ingredient in a much larger story? Is it possibly a route of access to a deeper and richer life? Unquote. And then, I say, we must consider the claim of the church that God can bring good out of evil. And so naturally, we ask the question, what good can he have brought out of the evil attacks on life and family that we have witnessed these last 75 years? First, I argue the great coming together of his Christian children. What we have seen over the past quarter century is something we have not seen since the great rupture of Christendom, the great splitting of the Christian faithful during the Protestant Reformation, there was a time when the antagonism between Protestants and Catholics, well, we killed each other. But I mean, even in recent memory, the, 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 the hatred and the fighting was, was, was vicious. And what we have seen over the past quarter century over these issues is the great coming together of his Christian children. Catholics and evangelicals putting aside our theological and ecclesiological differences, not all together, but largely in ways that we haven't seen before. We're putting aside our differences and banding together to fight back against the new state religion, against the new state God, 
We are working together to protect the unborn child, to protect marriage and family, and indeed to protect the right each of us has to practice our faith as we see fit. My work at the United Nations would be strange if we didn't work with evangelicals and Mormons and even Muslims. Make no mistake that God wants abortion to end. He wants the slaughter of the innocents to end. He wants marriage restored in the way that he made it. He wants us to be able to discover him and proclaim him free from interference and coercion by the state. He wants all of these things, but more than that, he wants all of his children to be one and eventually with him in heaven. We know this won't happen, and I'm not arguing indifferentism. I do not say that all roads to God are the same, not at all. I'm a faithful Catholic and believe the church is not just the one true church, but as Lenny Bruce, the comedian from the 60s, used to say, it is the only the church. I'm not afraid to say that in front of my brothers of other faiths. In fact, I once told a room full of senior Muslim diplomats that God wants all of them to become Catholic. <laughs> and they grin ear to ear, just like you guys are, you know, because they admire strong faith. I mean, these guys cite the Quran when they're negotiating. <clears throat> the second example of how God can bring good out of any evil, particularly the evil of these times, and I say right here, right now, we are living in a time of great saints and spiritual giants. There is no need to be nostalgic and long for previous times when they walk the earth because they walk among us right now. We have lived, let's not forget this, we have lived, we have lived in the time of Padre Pio. We are living through the age of Mother Teresa, St. Jose Maria Escriva, St. John Amola. Um, we have lived in the time of Vincent Capadano. We have lived in the time of Blessed Pierre uh, Giorgio Fersati. We have lived in the time of John Paul the Great and Benedict XVI. We have lived in the time of Brendan Kelly of Great Falls, Margaret Leo of McLean, and Audrey Stevenson of LaSalle St. Cloud. You don't know these people, some of you do. Some of you know these, knew these children personally. They're three young people who suffered greatly, died young, and brought many people to the faith. Brendan Kelly lived and died three miles from here. When he, he was born with Down syndrome, he suffered most of his life with leukemia. When he was in the sterile room getting his bone marrow transplant, they could hear him offering his suffering for Bella Santorum, who had just been born and was supposed to die. And Rick Santorum says to this day that Brendan Kelly saved her life and saves her life still. This little girl, Audrey Stevenson, um, from a suburb in Paris, although her, she has family here in Northern Virginia, in the plain, um, she brought the faith into her family. Um, you know, they were okay Catholics, you know? Jerome and Lillianne Stevenson were okay Catholics. They wanted more, and this three-year-old girl, three years, four years, somehow developed an intense faith. One day, her mother caught her uh, limping on the way home from school. Why are you limping, Audrey? And Audrey said, and I'm gonna mispronounce this, she said, je resist, I resist. She had taught herself mortification. Lillian had no idea where she learned this. She was diagnosed with leukemia, um, leukemia is um, an emergency. I never knew this until I started writing this book, Little Suffering Souls. You know, if you're diagnosed, you, you have to take an ambulance right away to the hospital because it's, it's so fast and deadly. So she was in the hospital and, and then she'd just been diagnosed and uh, I think she was five or six at this time. And uh, her mother, Lillianne, said, you know, everything 
we'll be fine if we just do what the doctor says. Follow his instructions. We'll do what he says. And uh, <laughs> Audrey said, no, Mommy, we're going to do what Jesus said. We're going to live like the birds in the trees. He will take care of us. And Audrey said, uh, Lillian said, I have no idea where she got that scripture. They, you know, they eventually went to the Catholic, the, the local parish, and said, all of these things are happening. We don't know where she's getting all this. And the priest said, gave one piece of advice, follow her. And then a couple of years later, she was dead. She died praying for the, um, for the, um, uh, uh, for her uncle, McLean, and, and he, he wanted to be a priest, and he sort of bounced around. And, uh, and now he's Father McLean Stevenson. Maybe some of you know him. Last example of, so we live in the time of great saints and spiritual giants, and we cannot forget that. We must always remember that. It is a blessed time for us. The last example of how he can bring good out of uh, these dark times is um, that we're living through one of the great debates of all time. And sometimes people miss this. You know, in the early church, um, they debated Christ himself. You know, think of the Arian controversy. Um, who was he? Who was Christ? Um, what a time it would have been to what it, it would have been remarkable to be alive at that time and to participate in this intense, important debate. Sometime later, there was a second debate about what is the church in the Middle Ages. Think of the Protestant Reformation. This was no less important than the nature of Christ himself. What a time it would have been to be alive in those times and to be given the job of defending Holy Mother Church. Now, we are living now in the time of the third great question, a debate that is no less earth-shattering. After all, what is the debate over homosexuality, transgenderism, pornography, and abortion really about? They're about a proper understanding of the human person. That's our debate. That's what's been given to us to defend. And we cannot let that go. He, the good Lord has sent us right here, right now, to answer the question of what is the human person. This is our debate. And Catholics are uniquely situated for this kind of debate because of the Catholic intellectual tradition and many other things. We must not, we must join this debate in ways large and small if we live in the present moment. Let me close with recent history. Recent history that demonstrates abundantly that we are living through one of the greatest epics that the church has ever known. This recent history also demonstrates that the world is obsessed with us. Have you noticed that the world is obsessed with the Catholic Church? I will describe a handful of events spanning roughly 20 years, beginning in 2002. These events came one after another, boom, 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 right on top of each other like a flood of grace, witnessed by the whole world. We begin with, two, in 2002, the story broke of sexually aberrant priests that had been abusing young people in the church, what Father Newhouse, who we miss every day, called the Logland. The world gloated over our humiliation. The world wrote our obituary. The church is finished, they said. All that was left was the world would pick over our bones. Now, did anybody care that this happened in other institutions, including other religious institutions? No. Satan specifically targeted the Catholic Church for this humiliation. He sent wicked men in our ranks to invade the priesthood because he knows his great enemy is Holy Mother Church. But even in the shadow of this scandal, the Holy Spirit was working. Two years later, do you remember what happened two years later in 2004? Do you remember the release of Mel Gibson's Passion of the Christ? It was released that year on an Ash Wednesday. 
because he's a genius. I was in a New York City hotel room that night and every single talking head on television was talking about that movie. It was the number one movie in America for three weeks. Keep in mind, as we all know, it was the bloody, brutal and bloody telling of our Lord's passion. It was a broadly Christian event, but it was a uniquely Catholic vision. The movie grossed $370 million domestically and a whopping $622 million around the world. But put all that aside, because the most interesting thing was that it sent people back to church. It sent people to confession who hadn't confessed in decades. It sent criminals to confess crimes that they had committed years before. There's the story of a murderer who walked into a jail in Sweden and admitted that he had committed murder 25 years before, and he was turning himself in because, and he said this, watch the passion of the Christ. This was a global event. The whole world watched intently this great Catholic event. But that's not all. For within only a few months of that powerful movie came what? Do you remember? 2004. John Kerry, a pro-abortion Catholic running for the presidency of the United States. And what did we witness? We saw a national debate about the proper role of the Catholic voter, to be sure. But more than that, we saw a national and even an international debate about the proper reception of the Holy Eucharist. The discussion brought before all of America and indeed the entire world the very meaning of the Eucharist, that it was the body and blood, soul and divinity of our Lord. I don't believe that we have ever seen anything quite like that in the history of our country and maybe even the history of the world. And almost before we could catch our breath, what did we see? We saw the beginning of the final suffering of our beloved John Paul the Great. We watched from February 2005 to April of that year as this great man suffered and died. There's a haunting photograph of the Holy Father leaving the Gemelli Hospital in a van returning to the Vatican for the very last time. The whole world followed him back to the Vatican that night, and then the whole world gathered under the window. Remember this? Prayerfully, as he showed us how to suffer and then how to die. And when the time came, people of all faiths raised their voices in praise and prayer for this good and great man. It was a global event. Millions filed through St. Peter's Square to view his body. Hundreds of thousands dropped whatever they were doing. Do you remember this? He went to Rome with no place to sleep and no plan except to thank our Holy Father. Hundreds of millions watched this remarkable event on television. The whole world watched. The whole world watched. And then the whole world stayed around to see who the next pope would be. <laughs> you remember that even our evangelical friends thought that they had a stake in who the next pope would be. And when the white smoke rose and the bells rang, a few hundred thousand ran to the square and hundreds of millions turned on their televisions to see Habemus Papam, we have a pope, and out comes Benedict, and maybe, I didn't say the whole world, if they didn't celebrate, the whole world watched. It was remarkable. And then, good gracious, Benedict resigned. The news shook not just our world, our Catholic world, but the whole world. This was followed by the elevation of Pope Francis, whose every utterance on planes makes global news, front page news, you know, just casual comments on planes. They can't get enough of us. And then once again, we're debating what it means to be a believing Catholic because Joe Biden was elected president. And once more, we are all called to explain the true meaning of the Holy Eucharist. Why does it matter so much if Joe Biden is a good Catholic or a bad Catholic? It just does because the church is the only the church. The church is divine. 
And so I ask you, in the history of the world, have we ever seen a time like this when the whole world has watched so intently and for so long our Holy Mother Church? We are living through one of the most remarkable epics that the church has ever known. Do not miss it. And consider this glorious thing. Who did he send to defend his creation this time around? He sent us. <laughs> and we are so lame. <laughs> you know, it's like, I don't know, maybe some of you guys went to Harvard and worked at Google. I don't know. Most of you probably didn't. But neither did the apostles, except for maybe, you know, Matthew, who worked for the Romans. God knew these times would be desperate, and he sent us anyway to defend his creation from within and without. He sent us here to remake society over against the onslaught of the new sexual barbarians. And so we must remember who he is and who we are and be comforted. Finally, I will say, Arnold Toynbee wrote many years ago that we had come to the very end of the spiritual capital built up through what was known as Christendom. He said, we awaited an age yet to be born, what John Paul the Great called uh, the great springtime of the faith, hinting at glorious seasons to come. And this is the new age waiting to be born. We await the flowering of this great age. Those in this room may not see it. We have lived in one of those odd times, between times, on the cusp of something new and wonderful. And so <laughs> we must consider Frodo, who turned to Gandalf and lamented, I wish it need not have happened in my time. And Gandalf said, so do I, and so do all of those who live to see such times, but that is not for them to decide. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given to us. I tell you, when Catholics of future ages, your children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, look back upon us in this age, they will look back with great envy. We need not be envious for times in the church for in the past, because our descendants, long to have been here with us right now in these difficult times, in these small rooms, when trouble closes in all around us, when there are so few of us to fight back, times of great danger, great fermentations of the faith, great times of great saints and spiritual giants, times where each faithful Catholic, each one of us is so badly needed. There is no finer time to be a faithful Catholic than right now. We hope you enjoyed this podcast from Oakcrest School. To subscribe to our podcast channel, visit oakcrest.org.